Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 15, Genesis 15, page 12, if you're using the Red Pew Bible, Genesis 15, page 12. Let me pray as we prepare to consider Genesis 15. Lord, guide us into an understanding of your word, this significant passage, this portion of your word that becomes so important throughout the rest of your word. Let us see it, let us understand it, let us come to a better comprehension of what it is you have done for us in salvation, that we might proclaim you more clearly and praise you more enthusiastically. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible is the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. There are a lot of good books. There are a lot of writings from which you can learn a great deal. But there is only one place you can turn to be absolutely certain to get the pure, unpolluted truth. And it is the Word of God, the Bible. So join me now as we hear from Genesis 15. We will be reading a portion and stop and consider part of our sermon and then finish the chapter. Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1. After these things, if you weren't with us last week, this is after the victory, the military victory over the eastern kings and uh, the meeting, the worship meeting with the uh, priest Melchizedek. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward is shall be very great. That is a strange statement. Abram's just won an impressive military victory. What does he have to fear? Why does he need a shield? And in that victory, he captured the the loot, the, the, the booty from nine kings. What reward could look very great compared to that? But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram also said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Have you ever just up and left your culture, your society, your favorite foods, your favorite music? Have you ever just left it all behind? Becky and I have moved many times, but always within the United States. Yes, things were different, but never radically so. Abram has gotten up because of obedience to God and left the culture he knew and went to an entirely new place. 
But that was not counted to him as righteousness. Have you ever left your family because God told you to do so? Do you really believe you could? We saw that Abram was slow to obey on that count, but he did eventually get there, leaving family behind in Ur, and then again leaving family behind in Haran. Abram's obedience was slow, but it was serious obedience. Have you ever obeyed God like that? But that was not credited to Abram as righteousness. Have you ever jumped into a fight against the playground bully who has just punched everybody else in the nose? As amazing and heroic as Abram's military uh, victory was in the last chapter, that was not counted to him as righteousness. Abram has done a lot of good things, not one of which has been counted to him as righteousness. Rather, what did we read there in verse 6? Abram believed Yahweh, and Yahweh counted that to him as righteousness. Abram's good deeds were not being scored as righteousness. Rather, his faith was. Now, that is as it has to be. If God tallies the accounting ledger of our lives based only on our actions, we're in serious trouble. You see, far too many people, far too many church going, Bible-reading, Christ-professing people have an image in their head of balance scales. Your good goes on one side, your bad goes on the other side, and so long as it tilts toward the good, you're okay. But that whole concept is wrong. It doesn't work. It cannot work. You got to hear this. Set aside your view of how things ought to be done. Jettison our culture's picture of what justice looks like. Blind justice holding the scales. And understand what the Bible says about this. God does not hold scales and measure us according to them. Consider Adam. We've been going through Genesis. Let's go back now to the beginning of Genesis. What did Adam do for which God sentenced him to death? He ate a piece of fruit. That's it. You need to really wrestle with that. You need to come to grips with that. It's not as though Adam uh, uh, polluted the waters of the rivers of Eden. He wasn't dumping toxic sludge into the those pure rivers and defiling God's creation. He didn't strip mine the width and breadth of the garden. He didn't thumb his nose at God's handiwork and defile it. He didn't scratch Eve's car. Or forget her birthday. He didn't even cheat on her or murder 
her. He ate a piece of fruit. And that's what fruit is for. He didn't even pervert the fruit. Adam's sin, Adam's action in and of itself isn't all that bad. In fact, in and of itself is arguably no sin at all. You cannot understand the seriousness of sin, nor can you understand the mechanism of salvation until you stop and realize that what Adam did wasn't all that bad. For it is only in reflecting on Adam's not-so-bad sin that you begin to realize the problem we have. You see, the problem is that Adam polluted himself. It was a minor pollution. It was a small pollution. It was only a little bit of pollution. But Adam polluted himself. And God is so pure, so perfect, so holy, that even the smallest amount of impurity is too much. So now do you see why Adam's really good or Abram's really good deeds cannot tip the balances in his favor? Because there is no balance involved. The whole view is wrong. It's not as if God's going to be okay with a, a little bit of sin over here so long as you got a whole bunch of righteousness over here. God's standard is absolute. Purity. A better picture might be like an EPA water quality test. But where the EPA might allow three parts per billion of arsenic in your water, or might allow uh, 17 parts per million of, uh, of this, that, or the other pollutant, God allows none. Some interesting reading I did this week. A bloodhound's nose, as you know full well, is highly sensitive. But let me explain to you how sensitive her nose is. If you take an Olympic swimming pool and you put half a a, a teaspoon of sugar in there. Now, a half teaspoon of sugar, little sugar packs we're all going to use in our coffee before Sunday school, that's roughly a full teaspoon. Half of that little sugar pack in an Olympic swimming pool. That's enough water to fill this sanctuary almost twice. Picture this room filled to that ceiling with water twice and half a packet of sugar dumped in. That bloodhound can find the pool that has the sugar in it. And sugar smells good. Imagine a pollutant like ammonia. That bloodhound can find even less ammonia in even more water. Now imagine the God who created the bloodhound. If she's that sensitive to pollutants, how much more her creator? Do you really imagine that your sin, first of all, is as small as half a packet of sugar? 
Secondly, smells as sweet as sugar. And thirdly, that you can overwhelm it with enough good deeds to fill this sanctuary twice over. That's the problem with the view. There is no amount of good works you can do to ever dilute that pollution of your sin enough to be acceptable to God. If God is, then he is supreme. And if he is supreme, then he is supreme in every characteristic, in every category, in every trait, which means his perfection is unsurpassed. It means his holiness is completely unpolluted. If our God has a balanced scale approach and is willing to put up with some amount of pollution over here, then he's a pollution-accepting God and he's not supreme. Move on. Stop trying to please him. Stop trying to pile up good works. That God is not a supreme being. But if he is a supreme being and his holiness is perfect and his righteousness is absolute, then stop trying to please him. Because you can't. No amount of good works is going to be heaped up to dilute your sin enough. And I assure you, your sin does not smell as sweet as sugar. And your good works do not heap up to multiple Olympic pools. We have a problem. And we cannot on our own make it right. And so the works of Abraham, as good as they were, would always be polluted with sin, and thus they were not counted to him as righteousness. But his faith was. So then, faith must be the one good work which saves us. Right? Wrong. We're careless sometimes when we talk about being saved by faith. We're technically saved through faith. It is the conduit by which salvation comes to us. It is the means by which salvation is appropriated. Faith in and of itself is not meritorious. It has no inherent value. We have an interesting problem before us to comprehend. Faith is essential, but not meritorious. How can this be? How can it be that we absolutely have to have faith, but that our faith does not in any way merit or earn our salvation, not even a single ounce of it? So to answer that question, we got to do two things. First, we've got to define meritorious. For something to be meritorious, that generally means that it obligates others morally to respond a certain way. A deed, an act, is meritorious if it obligates others in some moral or ethical way to respond. So, for example, the bravery of a soldier. When that soldier risks his life for his comrade in arms, comrades in arms, it obligates those comrades to respond a certain way. 
for those comrades, for that branch of the military, for us as a nation, not to honor people who risk their lives would be unethical. It would be immoral. We would be uh, 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 to be despised as a people if we did not recognize that kind of bravery. So his bronze star, his medal of honor, is merited. It's deserved. We are obligated morally and ethically to acknowledge the bravery of soldiers, firefighters, police, etc., etc., etc. Faith does not obligate God in any way. You do not manipulate God when you believe. You do not compel God when you believe. There is no ethical or moral obligation on God because of your faith. Your faith is not meritorious. So what role does it play in salvation? I could not on my own find an illustration that worked here, so I'm going to borrow one from John Piper. I liked his illustration better than anything I thought of on my own. Picture a dirt-poor peasant farmer. He's facing a meager harvest, and he has more debts than he can hope to pay off. He may not even have enough after the harvest to feed his wife and children. He is ruined. But one day in the mailbox, there is an envelope from a law firm. He opens it uh, from a, 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 sorry, sorry. It's an envelope from a, a famous philanthropist, wealthy philanthropist. He opens it, and the letter says, if you take this letter and you go to such and such a law firm and show them this letter, they will give you a check for $1 million. He's desperate. He's afraid of feeling like an absolute fool. He's afraid he may be suckered in by a scam. He's afraid that he shows the letter to the receptionist in the law firm. She's just going to bust up laughing. But he takes the letter to the law firm. And they hand him a check for a million dollars. Now he's concerned, what's the game? What's the gig? Is this check going to bounce? The check's not going to clear the bank? What's going on? He takes the check to the bank. It clears. His account is credited with a million dollars. He's able to pay all he owes, and he has wealth left over to live an abundant life. Did his faith merit the million dollars? Did it obligate the philanthropist in any way? It did not. His faith was essential. Had he thrown the letter away, had he looked at it and treated it like, you know, the publisher's clearinghouse, he would not have gotten the million dollars. His faith was essential, but it in no way obligated the philanthropist. What did? Well, first of all, the philanthropist began the whole process. It started with him. He or she was generous and sent the letter, had the vision to save this poor farmer. 
That philanthropist initiated everything, but could have backed out at any point, right? The philanthropist did it thinking, well, this would give people a good, oh, what, they actually came looking for a check? No, 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 don't give them the check. Why does the philanthropist pull, follow through at that point? For the sake of his own good name. For the sake of his reputation. For the merit of his glory. For the significance of his praise. The faith of the farmer was essential but it was in no way meritorious. The faith of Abraham, your faith, is essential, but it is not meritorious. Your salvation began with the generosity of God, and it ended with God's own concern for the glory of his good name. He will follow through because of who he is not because your faith has obligated him. Now, I'd rather not go into all the detailed reasons or the linguistic arguments, and etc., but for a variety of reasons, literary, structural, historical, etc., most scholars believe that what we have in Genesis 15 is not one a continuous vision, but rather two separate events, two separate visions. We have read the first one. And we've come to the conclusion that it is faith that is counted as righteousness. So the question in our minds is, how much faith? How good does our faith have to be to bring it home? Let's read on now in Genesis 15. And he said to him, that is, Yahweh said to Abram, I am Yahweh who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. You and I don't understand what that sentence means, probably don't. But it meant something to the original audience who would have heard this. And it for sure meant something to Abram, as we will see here in a moment. If I begin to tell you a story and I begin with the words, once upon a time, it clues you in to what kind of story is coming. If you open a letter and it begins with, Dear John, oops, you kind of know what's coming. There are certain openings that clue you in, and this is one of those. This is the opening of a covenant address. Archaeologists have now, for, for a long time, Bible scholars weren't sure what to make of all of this. Archaeologists have now uncovered enough examples of these from the ancient world, and they all begin in this way. A powerful king, a great king, writes to a lesser king and does so in this manner. Introduces himself. I am King Scott, ruler of Shawville. He then gives a brief summary of what he's done out of the goodness of his heart to those, to the recipient of the letter. I have saved you from the ruler of Denton. Denton doesn't have a king, so I thought it was an okay illustration. I am Yahweh. You are who you are in Canaan right now, Abram. You are the most powerful military man in the area. You are the possessor of phenomenal wealth. 
You are renowned. Remember, at the end of chapter 14, kings, plural, were lining up to talk with this guy. Because I did it for you. I am Yahweh. I brought you out of the Ur of Chaldeans. I brought you to this land that you might possess it. The opening of an address like that is to make clear that the lesser king, now get, don't get me wrong, Abraham was a great king, but he is lesser compared to God. And it was to make clear that the lesser king was obligated to the greater king. We keep reading, picking up in verse 8, but he, Abram, said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Do you hear the doubt? We just read about how his faith was credited to him as righteousness, and now he's doubting. I think of the passage in Mark. Lord, I believe. Please help my unbelief. Verse 9, he, Yahweh, said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Again, doesn't mean much to us, but they would have known what it meant. All sacrificial animals back then. Okay? So there's a ritual, a sacrificial ritual coming. And Abram brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Note how Abram knew what to do with these animals. God does not tell him how to set this ritual up. In other words, Abram knows what's coming. He understands the introductory sentence, and he understands the function of these animals. The ritual about to unfold means something to Abram. But it's going to unfold in an unprecedented way. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then Yahweh said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. Bit of an aside, it's not central to our lesson this morning, but I would point out a couple of things. If you pay attention to the timing of prophecy in the Bible, it is almost always connected to some traumatic event that's going to happen in history. God wants his people to understand that the unfolding of history is the unfolding of his plan. So when these people go off to slavery, he wants them to know that was his plan. I also want to point this out. Why did they go? So that the Amorites who live in the land might be spared, might be given a chance for 400 more years. When you read the book of Joshua and you are disturbed by the slaughter of the Canaanites, be reminded of this. God was patient with them. 400 years of patience. 400 years during which his own people were in slavery so that he could be patient with the Canaanites. 400 years they had to repent and to believe, and they did not. 
Picking up in verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now remember, this is being written, and the first time this would have been publicly read would have been to the people of Israel who were wandering in the wilderness. Wandering under what guidance? By day, a pillar of cloud. By night, a pillar of fire. They know what these two symbols mean. They know that this flaming torch and this smoking pot are theophany, a manifestation, a visualization of the invisible God. God is present in this ritual. He is there. Now, let me tell you what would have ordinarily happened. Not what does happen here, but what would have ordinarily happened. The great king who has come and said, I am King Scott, ruler of Shawville, and I have saved you from the king of Denton. Therefore, you will pay me tribute. And so that you understand what's at stake, you must walk through the bloody carcasses laying on the ground. And you, the lesser king, would pass through those carcasses, and the symbolism was clear. And in fact, we actually, archaeologists have uncovered a few words written out specifically, that the understanding is that what you're claiming is, if I don't keep up my end of the covenant, let it be to me as it was to these carcasses. Let me be cut in half and thrown on the ground for the birds of prey to consume. Abram fully expected to be the one walking through those carcasses. But what do we read happens? On that day, and I think I skipped over it already, didn't I? I jumped ahead. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. God is the one binding himself in this covenant. He's not binding Abram. He's binding himself. This is amazing. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Those dimensions are far more than Israel ever controlled, even under Solomon. The promised land was always to be a down payment on all the earth. For one day, the people of God will possess all the earth. And God says, if this doesn't happen, I'm the one on the hook, not you. 
Why do we say faith was not meritorious? We said faith was not meritorious because it is merely the means of receiving what you did not earn and do not deserve. And yet faith is hard. It's easy to imagine many poor farmers scoffing at that letter and throwing it away. It's easy to imagine Abram's struggle. God, I believe you, or at least I really want to. But it's hard to believe you. It's hard to think that you will deliver on your promise. After all, you promised a child, a son, and it's just too late for that. The time for that is past. Yes, you delivered on the promise of blessing. Yes, you've delivered on the promise to curse those who curse me. Yes, you have delivered on the promise that I would have a great name. But the window for having a child is gone. And every passing day, it's harder for Abram to believe God. Abram's doubt is why God does not merely say the promise again. Now, don't get me wrong. The word of God should be enough for all of us. He is God. But he also is a gracious God who condescends to our doubts. So the introduction set up the ritual that was coming. Abram knew the ritual and he laid out the pieces without instruction. And then God passed through them. You know, it's... The philanthropist... He hands out the money by his initiative. It's the generosity of his heart that decides to send out these letters to poor farmers. It's the concern for his good name and his glory and his reputation that binds him to honor what he put in those letters. Our, uh, our philanthropist is concerned about the glory of his name. And that's why God says to Abram, it's me, Abram, who's on the hook here, not you. For if our salvation depended on us in any way, the promise to Abram would always be in doubt. Would he really have offspring in faith? Would there really be people who would see it through? And God says, Abram, I want you to understand You don't have to raise up your children exactly the right, perfect way to make this happen. And the future generations don't have to do exactly the right things to make this happen. I'm not putting their reputation on the line. I'm putting mine on the line. I'm the one who will be humiliated if your offspring ever vanish from the earth. Let the record show right now. Let Shore Harvest Church go down as saying this right now. If Jesus tarries and the day comes that the church of Jesus vanishes from this earth, we've been fools. We've been duped. And the God of Abraham deserves to be mocked. He put his reputation on the line.
and said, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to be sure you have offspring. You take that letter from the mailbox and you get halfway to the attorney's office and you turn around and you go back home and you're like, honey, I can't do this. I'm going to feel, I'm going to feel like an idiot in the lobby of that lawyer's office. They're going to laugh at me. And she says, honey, we're desperate. We need the money. Go. You go. You, you stand outside. You hum and haw. You wring your hand. You finally go in. You turn the letter in. Every turn, your faith is wavering. You get the check and you can't bring yourself to go to the bank with it. They're going to arrest me. They're going to think I forged this check. They're going to think I'm a crook. At every turn, your faith wavers. It's not about how perfectly steadfast your faith is. So long as you cling to it. So long as you are holding on to the word of God and saying, when the day of accounting comes, all I have to pay the debt is the promise of this letter. When I stand before the judge, the only thing I'm going to have to show for it is the promise of this letter. And if there is no day of reckoning, I'm a moron. I got duped. And if there is a day of reckoning, then it better be according to this letter. We are not saved by our faith. We're saved by a generous and loving God who reached out to us. Our faith merits nothing. His goodwill, his good name, his concern for the glory of his reputation matters completely. We're saved by grace, through faith. And not even that is of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Lord, thank you for the covenant you made with Abraham. For the covenant wherein you put yourself on the line. You put yourself in the place of being obligated to make it happen. For we on our own would not. Thank you for giving us a letter of hope, a letter in which the promise to pay our debts is made. And Lord, steady us so that we hold on to it until that debt comes due. And then when that debt is paid, let our lips forevermore praise the love and generosity of you, Father, Son, and Spirit, who made it all happen. In this we hope, to this we cling. For this reason we praise. For this reason we continue in worship. For this we want to tell others so they might be saved by your generosity. We pray this in Christ's beautiful name. Amen.